You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, the French privateers in Nicaragua were in a tight spot. They were surrounded by Spanish cavalry, starving and desperate. However, a Spanish messenger brought them word that France and Spain were now at peace, almost allies. The Spanish officer's letter was signed and sealed by the vicar general and seemed to be legitimate. However, the French didn't trust the Spanish. Spain had a reputation, at least among pirates, to be a conniving, double-dealing, backbiting sort. In The Princess Bride, when the dread pirate Roberts, Wesley, is hanging off the side of a cliff, climbing his way up, Inigo Montoya, the swordsman, offers to throw him down a rope, but the dread pirate Roberts questions his trustworthiness. He says, wouldn't you trust my word as a Spaniard? And the dread pirate Roberts replies, no good. I've known too many Spaniards. It's a strangely prevalent prejudice among the pirates and privateers that operated in New Spain, and it's not without merit. Time and time again, the Spanish would cut a deal with one pirate or another and then go back on their word. They would turn on that pirate at the last second. However, let's not forget who the Spanish were dealing with. There were, occasionally, Spanish privateers and even some Spaniards among pirate crews, but there wasn't the same plague of freebooters coming out of Spain that was coming out of England and France and the Netherlands. The Spanish might make war, and frequently they did, but they rarely gave their sailors license to pillage and burn, torture and murder. It did happen occasionally, but less frequently. How would you deal with a horde of pirates on your shore? Would you do so honestly? Now, the French here in Nicaragua, under Francois Groinet, were aware of the potential treachery of the Spanish and of their own disadvantage in dealing with the Spanish, but they weren't without a few cards of their own. They were surrounded, but they did hold a number of Spanish officers captive. So the French sent a message back to the Spanish commander. If they were at peace, and Groinet was willing to believe that they were, the French would leave Nicaragua in peace. They had done no harm to Realejo, and that's actually true. They had done some significant harm to some of the outlying haciendas and estancias, but Realejo was in the same state in which they'd found it. So they cut a deal. 
If they were allowed safe passage back to the ships, they would release their prisoners and sail away from Rialejo and Nicaragua forever. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that this was their plan from the very beginning, as soon as they discovered the armies waiting for them in Nicaragua. But the peace back in Europe did give them a better bargaining position. The Spanish agreed to these terms, but they let the French know that they would be followed. It was not an easy peace. There was a tense march back to Rialejo and to the ships. However, the French proved true to their word. They took boats back to the ships and then sent their captives ashore. The French pirates Groinet, Jean Lescouillet, Mathurin de Marte, Pierre Le Picard, Ravenot de Lusanne, and about 300 other unnamed buccaneers were safe and back on the open ocean. However, they were in the same position that they'd been in before coming to Nicaragua, without sufficient food or money and with 300 or more mouths to feed. Grenet proposed that they go back on their word. He suggested they do, in fact, attack some settlements in Nicaragua. There were farms and ranches with plenty of food just off the shore, and the pirates could just row ashore, take their fill, and leave. Lusan mentions the dozens of tiny harbors along the coast of Nicaragua. There weren't established ports at these harbors, but they were a good place to lay anchor and make landfall, and the French had guides that knew all of them. At the first of these harbors, the Santa Rosa, their ship, made for land. But as they began to approach the coast, a huge bonfire came alight on shore. It was the sort of fire that could be seen for leagues around. It was the sort of fire that would require the work of, at the least, dozens of men. Someone had seen them coming and lit the fire to let the privateers know that the Spanish knew exactly where they were, and it served its purpose. The French adjusted their heading and moved on down the coast. At the next harbor mouth, the Santa Rosa made for the coast again, and once again a huge fire erupted. It became clear that these weren't just warnings. They were watchfires, they were signal fires. It let the French privateers know that they were being watched, and it let the ships that were certainly following them know exactly where the buccaneers were. Then the privateers came to the Gulf of Nicoya. This is episode 68. In a word, freebooters. We've seen the Gulf of Nicoya before. It's where Charles Swan and Peter Harris met up prior to joining forces with Edward Davis. It's a large, secluded, relatively secluded, and full of little lagoons and inlets that make it a perfect place to hide from prying Spanish eyes. And even if it weren't, the pirates here were starving. They were getting rations at the best every other day, and even those were small. They had plenty of water, but food was a serious issue. I always wonder why the sailors in situations like this don't just fish for food. I mean, they could at least set out some fishing nets, but they never do. It's probably a simple question that I don't understand. They probably don't know where to fish, where the best fishing grounds are, and it would be unlikely without that knowledge to catch enough fish to feed everyone on board. However, at Nicoya, they were finally able to lay anchor and put ashore. Now, the Spanish were still all around them, and they knew the French were here somewhere, but for the moment... The pirates had given their watchers the slip. That's the virtue of this Gulf of Nicoya. The Santa Rosa and 
Her boats had a small island all to themselves. The crew immediately went hunting and fishing off the island, but a hundred men went to the mainland to scrounge up something more substantial to eat. They slipped ashore on 5 January 1686. Now, there were small patches of woodland all around, large enough to hide the 100 men, but they were a fair distance apart from one another. The pirates sent out scouts out of the woods to look for any sign of Spaniards around and then to lead them to the next thicket. The scout would give a signal and all 100 men would burst from the tree line as silently as possible and run for the next one. They moved like this for four days, eating almost nothing, until they came to a small town called Chiquita. This was in modern-day Costa Rica, and Chiquita was small, but I imagine most of you have heard the name before. A few scouts kept a lookout for any troops in the area, but there didn't appear to be any soldiers around. So, the privateers... Well, are they privateers at this point? Ravno de Luzon begins to question exactly what they were doing here on the Spanish main. He wasn't arguing against it, especially not at the time. An empty belly solves a lot of arguments, but after the fact. Well, he describes their entrance into Chiquita in colorful language. Quote, We got to Chiquita about two hours before daybreak. We surprised all the inhabitants going about the rounds, and after we had secured our prisoners, we told them that belonged to us that we were come to spare them the labor. We surprised also their court of guard, and as soon as they saw us amongst them, they flew to their arms to defend themselves. But as it was a little too late, we eased them of that trouble also. End quote. I love Ravno de Luzon's choice of words. They came to spare their prisoners the labor. They also relieved the guards of their duties. He seems to have a flair for that dramatic, piratical attitude. You can just see a Spanish guard reaching for his musket when the tip of a cutlass enters the frame, under his chin, backing him away from the weapon. And then, oh, you won't be needing that. Why not take a break? We've got it from here. It's the perfect blend of menacing and dashing and just a little bit charming that makes up a pirate with gentlemanly airs. However, it appears that the French here actually did relieve the slaves of their labors. The inhabitants going about their rounds were slaves and field hands. They were men and women working the plantations around Chiquita. Now, it was two hours before daybreak. That might seem like an odd time for a plantation to be at work, and if it were sugar or coffee or cotton, yeah, it would be. However, the plantation at Chiquita, as you might imagine, grew bananas. Lots of bananas. The plantation was one of many in Costa Rica that grew fruit. They were owned by private landowners, but all of them had a financial interest in the Spanish trade monopoly. About 200 years after this little pirate raid, the United Fruit Company, a U.S.-based corporation, would virtually take Costa Rica over. In essence, the United Fruit Company owned the land and the government of Costa Rica, hence why this country was given the moniker of a banana republic. The atrocities committed by the United Fruit Company were, well, they were terrible, and they led to a revolt and a rebranding of the company as the Chiquita Banana Company, as well as a restructuring. 
All that is to say, when the starving French pirates took Chiquita by surprise and opened the warehouse there, they found it filled to the rafters with ripening yellow bananas. They took the town before dawn. They rounded up all the people there and set about filling their bellies. They spent the better part of the morning eating as many bananas as possible. The following day, they found another plantation nearby with row upon row of palm trees. They were growing coconuts there, which none of the Frenchmen had ever tasted before. They thought they were going to be large nuts. They looked like nuts, after all. But then they found them filled with liquid, and once you got them open, a sweet and savory pulp. It seems that the coconuts were underripe when the pirates were eating them. At least, the French wondered who would eat a fruit so bitter or drink the sharp liquid found within, but as the coconuts ripened, the coconut grew on them. The buccaneers actually went out to harvest coconut and banana. They were inexperienced at doing so. More than a few of them had the opportunity to meet the tarantulas and vipers that lived in the fruit trees, and even a few of them died. But after a few days, they had sacks and crates filled to bursting with not quite ripe fresh fruit. While they held the town, the officers questioned the locals. They learned of a frigate that had just left their shores carrying treasure, reportedly. It sounded too good to be true, the perfect sort of wild goose chase that would tempt the privateers away from town. However, one of the Frenchmen spotted a Spaniard in a window across town. It appeared that they had missed someone while they were rounding up the populace. The commander sent five men out to gather him in, and Luson went with him. When those five were approaching the house, suddenly, 120 men burst out from doorways and windows and the mouths of the alleys. They were surrounded immediately. The five pirates put themselves back to back in a circle and fired at Spanish guards that had ambushed them. Lusan says that they resolved never to be taken alive, but to sell their lives as dearly as possible. They had no real means of escape, at least not a quick means of escape, but within minutes, one of their number had already been killed. The pirates found some rubble to act as cover, but even then, it was only a matter of time before they were overcome and left dead. Lusan says they fought there for an hour and a half. Another of their number was killed in that time, and a third was hit and bleeding out. He writes, quote, it was impossible we should hold out against such a shower of bullets as was poured on us from all sides. God was pleased that some of our men came to our relief, being driven thither by the firings, for they thought before they heard these cries that we were exercising ourselves in shooting at a mark. This sucker coming in so seasonably did infallibly save our lives. The Spaniards left thirty more dead upon the spot, and thus we defended ourselves as desperate men and to say all in a word, like freebooters. End quote. Five men, pinned down for more than an hour by 120 soldiers, with three either dead or wounded, they held out until reinforcement came. At the end of the passage, Lusan seems to come to a conclusion. They were, in a word, freebooters. He seems to give up the illusion that they're privateers, that they're mercenary soldiers in a time of war, doing the will of the king, and thus the will of Almighty God himself. 
He realizes that they were starving, desperate men, far from home, fighting for survival and stealing what was needed. They were, in a word, pirates. Now, I don't believe the numbers he gives for even a minute. 120 against 5? I mean, come on. There were five French pirates, but I would suspect no more than, at the very most, 50 Spanish soldiers. But even 50 able musketeers, even if they had inferior weapons, well, they could seem like far more than that, when you're as outnumbered as Luzon and his friends were. But this was a serious situation. They had killed Spanish guards. They had killed Spanish citizens. It wasn't in a time of war, and it was entirely for the sake of their own benefit. Had they come in, stolen some bananas, not harmed anyone, and left promptly, well, that could be overlooked. That could be passed by. But this crossed the line. They were openly fighting the Spanish. They were pirates now, and they knew it. It looks almost like some of them had a brief crisis of conscience over this, but their instinct for survival took over. The French took the local notables there prisoner and returned to the boats. They found a few Spanish militiamen waiting for them there in ambush, but the pirates fired on them and chased the ambush off. At the boats, a messenger found the pirates to negotiate the release of the prisoners. Luzon writes, quote, After the enemy had retired, they sent us a person to demand their prisoners, whom they said they would recover or perish in the attempt. We told the messenger we were very ready to give them up, if they would come and meet us to take them, but that if they fired a single bullet at us, they should have no quarter, which so humbled their pride that we saw no more of them. End quote. The 100 pirates, well, it's closer to 90 now, they returned to the Santa Rosa, to Groinet and their island. The pirates there had abandoned the Santa Rosa, actually. They'd beached her. She was their largest vessel and carried most of the men, but she was insufficient to their needs. The sails were rotten, as were many of the ropes. The hull was weak and leaky. They only had a few guns, and on a ship that size, the few guns they had weren't enough to properly defend her. So the pirates started building pirogues. A pirogue is, well, it's basically the French word for a periagua. The term caught on in Louisiana, and it's still used for many of the boats used in the bayou there. They're also common in Haiti and on Madagascar. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. It's a little different, though. A periagua might be made from two canoes, but this would be just a single-masted, hollowed-out boat, large enough, though, to mount swivel guns or a blunderbuss often. They could be rowed in rivers or creeks and carried if need be, but were also acceptable for the open ocean. They also began building a half-galley, just a two-masted, square-rigged vessel. It's a small ship, very much like a brigantine, although a little smaller. Now, it won't hold much cargo, but it would carry pirates with muskets and their four guns. They were fast and nimble, and this would be as heavily armored as they could make it. It wasn't a powerful warship, but it was their strongest vessel. Unless they could catch that frigate that the people in Chiquita had mentioned. Grenet sent Marthurin de Marais out to see if he could find and capture the frigate. They found, well, the wreck of what had once been the frigate. There wasn't much there to salvage, but they did manage to take some lumber and tools and the like to help them in building their half-galley. 
What they did find of importance was a satchel. It was carrying letters. Lusanne says that they found a letter detailing the fate of the treasure fleet out of Lima, that same fleet that had bested them at Panama, that one that had been sailing around and taxing the locals ever since. Lusanne says, and I want to stress that this is what Lusanne says, that the flagship of the fleet was struck by lightning. The entire crew, including the villainous admiral, was burned in a moment. What's miraculous about this bit of information are the reports that there was no thunder heard that night, nor was there a storm. It's just a single thunderbolt from heaven to smite the Spanish. There aren't any Spanish records to corroborate the claim. The French spent several weeks there in the Gulf of Nicoya building their ships. After five days, a courier did come to the agreed-upon location with the ransom for the prisoners, and they were set free. Mostly, the pirates were left there, in peace, until the 27th of January. They had lookouts out in the bay in fast boats, and they came rowing in. They'd seen seven ships sailing into the bay, along with twelve periaguas and three barks. It was that same Peruvian treasure fleet, and it was coming to hunt them down and finish them off. Gruenet ordered the separate crews into their boats and into the middle of a river on their island. If they were found, the Spanish would... Well, they, they would be unable to come in close to the pirates on the river. Only the periaguas and barks could approach them at all, and even then, only a few at a time. From there, the pirates could make a stand. Even if they were overwhelmed, they had... Well, they had the opportunity to make a stand and give the Spanish a bloody nose, the sort of act that wouldn't soon be forgotten. The Spanish fleet did find evidence of the pirate presence on the island. They found the abandoned Santa Rosa. However, they assumed that the Santa Rosa was fortified against an attack, which would make sense to beach your vessel as a sort of fortress from which to fight, but the pirates preferred to fight on water, if at all possible. Luzon writes, quote, on the 28th, our sentinels came and gave us notice that six pirogues had plied along the shore, which made us put 150 men to lie in ambush on both sides of the river. But they, suspecting a stratagem, bore directly upon our ship that was run aground, upon which they fired very seriously, though there was none left within it but a poor cat. They bravely boarded and burnt her for the sake of the ironwork that belonged to her, which is a commodity rare and dear in some parts of Peru. The Spanish fleet sailed away and left us at ease to finish our work upon which we spent the remainder of the month. End quote. I love that. None but a poor cat left on board, and the Spanish bravely boarded the ship to face none but the poor cat aboard. It's a subtle but fantastic dig at Spanish bravery, at least in the eyes of Luzon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. I'm troubled because I'm finding more and more to like about Ravno de Lusan. And he was hard to like. He was violent, racist, he was a colonialist, and he had nothing good to say about, well, Africans or Native Americans or the Spanish or the English or really anybody who wasn't French. But the French stood atop the world in 1686, and they were a proud people. And Lausanne shows more than a little flair for the clever, witty French literature that was so popular at the time. However, very little of note happened for about the next two months. The pirates finished up their boats, put to sea, ate their food, went hungry, went ashore to find more food, mostly failed to find more food, but they scrounged enough to survive. Lusan puts it bravely, but nearly every time they tried to raid a village, they were chased off. They did eventually raid another banana plantation. They then passed articles against violence and drunkenness, and then, on the 21st of March, the French spotted 13 sail approaching. They were smaller vessels, but enough to be of concern. The French fled, and they were chased along the coast for two days. But the other fleet had the advantage. They had the wind, and they were approaching quickly. So the French vessels decided it was time to turn, make a stand, and prepare to do battle. When the enemy ships got close enough, the largest ship in the fleet hailed the French. In English. Weeks ago, far to the northwest, Captain Townsley decided that Charles Swan, of the Signet, that his plan to cross the whole of the Pacific Ocean and circumnavigate the globe was insane. He'd returned to the main. He'd actually run into Captain Davis at one point, but then he found himself here in the company of the French pirates. They had taken similar steps to those of the French pirates, to, oh, when they were smaller in number, it was better to split up into smaller ships, into smaller boats. It would be easier to attack a larger craft from many different angles. They would be at a disadvantage in either the Santa Rosa or Captain Townsley's old ship, but in many small boats, the pirates were accustomed to doing battle in that fashion. Right here, it's finally important to make note of the quartermaster of Captain Townsley's vessel. See, Townsley's crew was fractured, and the second most important man, the second most influential man in the crew, the quartermaster, was a man named George Dew. He's been around this entire voyage in the Pacific, at least since Townsley joined, and possibly before. And he was an influential pirate, but he hadn't yet done anything of... Well, he hadn't done anything that our chroniclers found noteworthy. Not yet. Groinet, well, the French still harbored some bitterness toward the English pirates. There was an age-old rivalry 
between the two factions of buccaneers, and then most of these men had fought against one another during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. Beyond that, there was the incident outside Tortuga that happened between a French and English captain, but neither of them were here now. But then there were the actions of the English earlier in this voyage that the French felt treated them unfairly, and then the English burned and defiled the Catholic Church. So the French arrested the English pirates. It's questionable whether they had the authority to arrest the English pirates, but there were more French pirates than English, and they had more guns. So they put the English in custody. Then they boarded the English ships and started carrying off anything of value. A few hours passed, and, well, I'll let Lusanne tell it here. Quote, We, finding ourselves to be the stronger party, called to mind their former imperious dealings with us, and, to show our resentment of it, we made him and his men prisoners. We boarded his vessel immediately, of which, having made ourselves masters, we made a sham of taking away. But our design being only to frighten them, left them for some time under the apprehension of danger they were in, then we let the captain know we were honester men than he, and that, though we had the upper hand, we would not take the advantage of revenging the injuries they had done us, and that we would put him and his men in possession of what we had taken from them four or five hours before. End quote. It was a ploy. Just a little bit of petty revenge and posturing to show who was the stronger party here, and that the French were better than the English. The intent was to show that they were more chivalrous, honest, and true to their word. And that appears to have worked. Townsley joined up with Groinet. It might not have been the honesty of the French pirates, but merely the promise of taking some prizes of worth. Groinet, Picard, Desmarais, Lescouillet, and Lusanne, well, they made up a decently sized force. They had decent ships. However, Townsley and George Dew had many more guns with them. If they pooled their resources, they could actually steal something more valuable than bananas for a change. And the French had a plan. They'd been too weak to set their plan in motion, but finally they had the opportunity. They were going to attack Grenada. That's the Grenada in Nicaragua, not that far from Lyon, from Realejo. It's the same Grenada that Henry Morgan occupied back in the 1660s. And it's the same Grenada that they had agreed not to attack due to the peace between their king and the Spanish king. And now they were going to go back on that word because while there was peace, they were no longer privateers. Now they were pirates. It took a few weeks for them to prepare and reach the coast of Nicaragua. The pirates disembarked, not at Realejo, but down the coast ways. They began a march, as quietly as possible, inland. They avoided towns and people as much as possible, and were successful in doing so. That's a smart move. You want to avoid any notice. That would give warning to the people of Grenada. But it did offer one major problem for the pirates. People keep food around and tend not to keep their food out in the jungle. 
There was hunting and gathering, but several hundred marching pirates tend to scare off game. The pirates went without food for several days on their march inland until their legs were weak with hunger and they were uncertain that they would actually be able to make it another full day without food. So Groenet finally allowed a detour to a sugar plantation. It was owned, according to Lusan, by a knight of St. John. That's... Well, the knights of St. John were a medieval order of knights formed in the First Crusade. Their full name was the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. The Hospital of St. John was named after John the Baptist, and the knights of his order were... Well, they were called the Knights Hospitaliers, and they settled at one point after the Ottomans took Jerusalem over on the island of Malta. They were the Knights of Malta. They were no joke, and they're actually still a sovereign entity that resides in Rome, and many would credit them with the defense of Italy and Rome and the Catholic Church. To a Catholic, even a French Catholic, that would have been a huge deal. And he wasn't actually Spanish, not as I understand it. The sovereign entity of the Knights of St. John owned islands in the West Indies at one point. They were closely allied with Spain, but not Spanish. And here, these Frenchmen were on the property of such an illustrious man, a man that on some level should have been revered by them. Lusan writes of him and regrets to tell us that this revered noble, chivalrous knight of St. John, escaped them. He got away because, well, they were still tired. Their legs weren't working very well. However, there was plenty of food on his plantation for them to eat, and they did manage to capture a few of his household and question them. The news that his household members had, well, it wasn't good. Grenada was prepared for the pirates. They knew the pirates were here and marching for the city, the city had been emptied of all of her wealth. Those riches, of perhaps the richest city in the region, were put on board ships and carried to an island in Lake Nicaragua. That treasure was behind strong walls and guarded by 2,000 men. And then the people of Grenada, well, they were long gone as well. They were evacuated and protected far from the city, and they'd taken the food with them. Then... There was a fortress guarding the only approach to the city, manned by hundreds of soldiers with fourteen cannon and six paidereros, which are basically mortars. That's a daunting possibility. Not impossible to overcome, but it wouldn't be easy. The question is, if they didn't have food or people or wealth in the city, why bother attacking? They might ransom it, but the overwhelming military strength would make even doing that difficult. Why not just turn around and return to the sea? Therein lies the problem. The prisoner that they were questioning told them one last bit of unfortunate news. Behind them, coming up from the coast, following in the pirates' footsteps, was a force of 2,500 Spanish cavalry. They were there to trap the pirates between their force and the walls of the fort. Now the Spanish were wise to the pirates' game. They didn't intend to let them escape Nicaragua or the Pacific. Lusan admits that most would have given up here. They would have surrendered and waited to be captured, thrown themselves on the mercy of the court. But the pirates had one other option, 
If they could take the fort quickly before the horsemen arrived, they could hold it against the Spanish. Not long term, not forever, but long enough to buy themselves the time needed to slip away to the lake's shore and steal a bark. They didn't want to try for the treasure on the island fortress, but rather they wanted to take that bark across Lake Nicaragua and then sail it upriver to the pirate haven at Bluefields on the Mosquito Coast. Bluefields was that, well, settlement's too strong a word. It was a hideout known to most of the buccaneers. The first pirate to use it was Abraham Blaufeld, a Dutch pirate. It was little more than a pirate cove, but it was more than a pirate cove. There were no taverns or inns, but there were hidden docks, and probably some mosquito Indians and escaped slaves who would give you aid, even, perhaps, another pirate crew that would help you. That was the goal for these French and English pirates. They wouldn't strike it rich in Grenada, but they would be able to go home. They would be able to escape the hunger and the Spanish noose. The pirates discussed their options, and they resolved to try for the fort, to take the lake, to find blue fields and freedom. Usan writes, quote, This information, which doubtless would have terrified any other but freebooters, did not retake our design one minute, nor hinder us. End quote. About two the next afternoon, the pirates arrived at the suburbs of Grenada. They encountered a Spanish patrol and fought an engagement with them, but chased the Spanish off. And then they waited among the houses in that suburb for word from a detachment of scouts that they'd sent off. Those scouts returned and told the captains of three forts, not just one. It would be impossible to pass any one of the forts by without taking fire from one of them. However, if they focused their attention on just one of the forts, they could avoid fire from the other two and follow through with their plan. The whole army, the small army, of buccaneers marched on one of the forts. When they drew near, they were spotted. They didn't intend to not be spotted. But the Spanish atop the walls opened up a full volley. Muskets, cannon, pedereros, all fired. The pirates were ready for this. When the first volley was fired, every man among them fell to his belly. This served two purposes. First, it confused the hell out of the Spanish. At first, they thought the pirates had been killed in a single volley. Huzzah, we've won the day. But second, it let the hail of hot iron that the Spanish fired at them pass harmlessly overhead. The pirates got up, and while the Spanish collected themselves, realized what had happened, and reloaded, the pirates continued their march on the fortress. A second volley was called, again the Spanish fired, and again the pirates fell to the ground, and again they got up and continued marching. But the Spanish commander caught on here. He ordered a third volley, loudly, and the pirates fell to the ground. When the volley had passed, they got up, started marching. But that third volley was a false volley. Without warning, and far too soon, the Spanish fired again and caught the pirates off guard. The Spanish scored a hit. The front line of the pirates fell. Dozens of men were left dead or injured. Had he realized the ruse sooner, it might have saved the Spanish in the fort, but it was too late. The pirates were too close now. They rushed the walls of the fort and reached them before another volley could be prepared. Then they started throwing fire pots and granados up at the Spanish defenders until, finally, the Spanish atop the wall fell back. 
The soldiers fled the fort entirely, and the pirates scaled the walls and took possession of the fort. For the Spanish, it wasn't really a defeat. It was a tactical retreat. The Spanish pulled back to Grenada, which only served to further defend the already well-defended city. The French and English, though, who were now masters of the fort, cheered their victory. They'd won. They'd taken a fortress. It had strong walls and plenty of guns they could use to defend her. But it was just a fort. They could defend it, certainly, but why? They would eventually need supplies, and it's not like they could trade for food or farm. And then the men climbed the walls. From atop the walls, you could see the city of Grenada, the grandeur of it, the wealth that would have been there had not it fled into Lake Nicaragua. And they could also look down at Lake Nicaragua. There was the island, there was the fortress with the treasure behind its walls, and surrounding that island fortress, guarding the coast and the coast of Lake Nicaragua, were dozens of heavily armed craft, barks, sloops, periaguas, all of them carrying heavy artillery, swivel guns, and men with muskets. It would be impossible to sneak down there and steal a craft. It would be impossible to overwhelm even one of those vessels, and if they did, an armada would fall on them immediately. There was no way across the lake. Without that, there was no way to cross the Isthmus, and no way to find blue fields and the West Indies, except through thousands of Spanish soldiers. Lusan writes mournfully, quote, The term of dangers and miseries which our destiny had still in store for us, being not yet come, we could not take the advantage of so favorable an opportunity to get out of those parts of the world. Which, though very charming and agreeable to those who are settled there, yet did not appear to be so to an handful of men, as we were, without shipping, the most part of our time without victuals, and wandering amidst a multitude of enemies, against whom we were obliged to be continually upon our guard, and who did all that in them lay to deprive us of subsistence. End quote. By the end of the day, every ship on Lake Nicaragua had received word of the pirates. They knew that someone might come down to try and steal one of their ships, but they were vigilant. The army outside the city set up lines and defenses and kept the fort surrounded and watched. After two days in the fortress, the pirates made up their mind. They would not surrender. They would not give up. They would not beg quarter. The pirates opened the gates and marched forth. Five hundred men, maybe five hundred men, marched out to meet an overwhelming force of Spanish horsemen. The cavalry were probably surprised by this move. They didn't expect to see the pirates march out to their doom. They thought they were going to have to starve them out. But here they were. The cavalry, as the pirates marched toward them, lined up and charged. Then the pirate lines parted. They revealed a surprise. They'd brought down cannons from the fortress walls and rolled them all the way out here, well in range of the Spanish army, and the Spanish were kind enough to line up and ride toward them. Lusan writes, quote, Not dreaming that we had brought any of their artillery along with us, they were so terrified when we had fired two cannon shot that they left us a free passage, for they saw a great many of their men sprawling upon the ground. 
end quote. The pirates marched through the former Spanish lines. They found one man, wounded but not terribly, who they took captive. And that man told the pirates a great tale. There was one and a half million dollars in assorted silver and gold and jewels in Grenada right now. They had it hidden inside the walls of the town. The soldier would show them where, if only they promised not to kill him. Groinet didn't believe this yarn. Moussan says, quote, We had no inclination to go back in search of this money, seeing we found difficulty enough to rid ourselves out of the hands of so considerable a number of enemies as we had already to deal with. End quote. Their ploy saved them. They might have all died without those cannons, but it really just bought them time and little else. The horse wouldn't be surprised again. They knew the pirates had artillery, and they already had ambushes planned, waiting on the road back to the ships. Plus, there were other columns of foot soldiers in the area that were currently marching on the pirates. So the pirates ran. There were a few other fights, but little more than skirmishes, and the cannon they brought with them helped, but eventually they spiked and abandoned those cannons. The march was grueling, but they made their way to the coast. They fought one last fight at the ships and made it back to sea. Here I find myself at an impasse. How best to continue this story? In the writings of Ravno de Lusanne, we have at our disposal a fantastic first-hand account of the entirety of this Second Pacific incursion. He records events in wonderful detail and even has that dramatic eye and flourish that almost matches the style of later pirate novelists. However, the contents of his story are uninspiring. These French pirates stayed in the Pacific for months and months more, but most of it never really resulted in anything significant. Endless hunger, repeated failure, constantly in danger of capture or death. That sounds exciting, and some parts of it are, but it also just gets monotonous. I could give an almost daily account of the journey. For example, on April 7, 1686, they went ashore to collect wood and water, they found some. A few pirates hoped to find some prisoners at a local estate, but nobody was home. And it goes on and on like that. It's a story of the pirates slowly starving. Really, the entirety of 1686 from this point on, from April to December, is uneventful. At least, to us it is. I'm sure it all mattered a great deal to those who were involved in the story. But there is really little of real consequence coming up. I could tell the whole story in great detail. It's an opportunity I'll rarely have again. But I wouldn't have anything to add. Nothing really changes for the rest of the voyage, at least until 1687. So next time I'm going to fast forward through the events of 1686 and move into 1687 at the end of this voyage to the Southern Ocean. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of you who have become patrons on Patreon, or given us a review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to the show, or told your friends about us. Without all of you, I couldn't keep doing this, so thank you. 
Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight